Welcome to the Vitality Shift Podcast for Chiropractors. I'm your host, Dr. Don McDonald, author of the best-selling book, The Underdog Curse. Weekly, we will be interviewing amazing chiropractors from around the world, finding out how they made their vitality shift. If you're a chiropractor that either wants to just move your practice away from treating pain and conditions, or if you just want to stay inspired, this podcast is for you. For more information on past shows, please visit www.drdonmcdonald.com and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and uh, I'm back. Yes, we took a little bit of break through the summer, um, but we're back with the Vitality Shift podcast for chiropractors. And uh, I just want to do a little introduction today because I kind of done, I'm doing an introduction post the interview. So this this next interview is with Dr. Stephen Porges. And this has been a huge thing because um, as you, many of you know, Brandy just got recertified in trauma care and um, going through all that and, and, and diving into the polyvagal theory, I was just thinking, man, I got to reach out to Dr. Stephen Porters and see if I can get him on the podcast because everything they talk about is like so linked to chiropractic. It's absolutely insane. And what they're talking about, they have no idea that chiropractic can help with um you know, just help regulating the nervous system. So I'm really excited to introduce this next episode. I'm, I'm just going to read out his bio just because, um, like, just to get an idea, if you've never heard of Dr. Stephen Porges or the polyvagal theory, this is just a little introduction. And then later on in this interview, we'll kind of go over all the, the key things. So Dr. Stephen Porges, PhD, is a distinguished university scientist at the Indiana University, where he is founding director of the Trauma Stress Research Consortium. He is the professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and professor emeritus at both the University of Illinois and Chicago and the University of Maryland. He has served as the president of the Society for Psychological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavior and Brain Sciences. And he's the former recipient of the National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. He has published more than 300 peer-reviewed papers across several disciplines, including, get all this, anesthesiology, biomedical engineering, critical care medicine, ergonomics, exercise physiology, uh, neurology, neuroscience, obstetrics, pediatrics, psychiatry, psychology, psychometrics, space medicine, and substance abuse. In 1994, he proposed the polyvagal theory, a theory that links the evolution of mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behavior and emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavior problems and psychiatric disorders. The theory is leading to innovative treatments based on insights into the mechanisms meditating or yeah meditating symptoms observed in several behavioral psychologists and physical disorders he is the author of the polyvagal theory um the also the pocket guidebook to the polyvagal theory and i've read that and it's really good and he just recently you'll find at the end of the interview he's coming out with another book talked about uh safety he is the co-creator of a music-based intervention called the Safe and Sound Protocol, which is currently used by more than 1,400 therapists to improve spontaneous social engagement, to reduce hearing sensitivities, to improve language processing, and state regulation. So that was a mouthful, but I wanted to make sure I go over all that just so if people aren't um, familiar with him, he, he just he's done a lot. And the crazy thing about this interview is we, we, he speaks 
in a language that chiropractors would totally understand. We see these things happen in our practice every single day. And the great thing about the polyvagal theory is it's almost like an umbrella to kind of explain why we're seeing things we are and giving us language that we can use to help explain it. So I will stop now and uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. Let that thing roll. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Vitality Shift Podcast for Chiropractors. Uh, I'm Dr. Don McDonald, your host. And today, I think I've been waiting for this interview for like almost my whole life in chiropractic because um, I have a really special guest with me, Dr. Stephen Porges. Um, he Basically, the polyvagal theory is it helps to explain a lot of the things that we see in chiropractic care. And, uh, and it just gives me great pleasure to be able to bring him live on the podcast to share his expertise with our listeners around the world. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Don. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for uh, allowing me to venture into your world for, for an hour. Yes. Well, it's funny because as I venture into your world, it's totally in our world. So there's a lot of similarities. So I first would like to have you maybe introduce yourself, just like how you developed the polyvagal theory um, and, and just kind of like give a little introduction for people who may not have heard your work before. Okay. So I'm a behavioral neuroscientist. I've been interested in how our physiological state, our autonomic state influences how we relate to the world. And, you know, we've all kind of been uh, indoctrinated by a cultural perspective in science and medicine and education that everything is about how we think. And yet we've all experienced that when our bodies are a little bit dysregulated, we might call it anxiety, we could call it illness, we can call it obsession, it doesn't matter. When our bodies go into states of threat, we're basically worthless as a social species. We can't uh, uh, communicate, we can't calm others, we can't co-regulate, and we're not very smart. So if you really want to get upset and take a test, you know what I mean. And many of you have been in that situation. And you say, well, I have to calm down. I have to calm down. So your internal wisdom is telling you that you can be, that your potential is as sense dependent upon your physiological state. And polyvagal theory basically uh, creates the map of what that is. And it's really based upon the evolutionary history of vertebrates and how their autonomic nervous system changed. And really the most interesting part of that journey is a journey to sociality in which our nervous system evolved to turn off threat reactions. I mean, right. just think about turning off threat reactions. You would say becoming calm, becoming sociable, creating relationships, and from a truly medical perspective, supporting homeostatic health, health growth and restoration. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what kind of interested you this in the first place? <laughs> uh, you know, there are different uh, narratives of personal journeys because yeah. we're all, you know, we're, we're all on some type of personal journey. And sometimes we're trying to make sense of why we've committed so much of our personal resource to that journey. And sometimes we're confused. Mm -hmm. um, I can come up with numerous stories, uh, but I would say that I've always been interested in what, you know, the metaphor is what makes people tick. You know, why are you attracted to them? Why do you like them? And, you know, how, how does that work? You know, what, what is the underlying magic? What is the magic in a person's voice? What is the magic in their facial expression? And then how is it that you know when someone isn't, quote, doing well from their voice, from their face, from their gesture, from their posture? Where did these cues, why are these cues critical to us? In a sense, where in our evolutionary history, our genetic history, uh, did systems develop to detect those cues? 
and in fact, detect them very with great validity, yet we're never taught to look at them. In fact, we're often taught not to. So we're taught not to, uh, in a sense, honor and respect your body's reactions to situations. We're told not to feel, to get over it, to sit down, do your work, get it done. We tend to be very focused on products and on cognitive function, which ends up being disrespectful to what our body's trying to tell us. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. Um, and, and especially from the chiropractic point of view, um, how does that dial in with the sympathetics? Because we're all we're all with the sympathetics, parasympathetics. Yeah. I would, I'd love well, to just give a little overview of that. Sympathetic, you know, we don't want to give sympathetics a bad name because right. it gives us our energy, our enthusiasm, but we don't want it to support aggression and defense. Mm-hmm. And this this is where this newer uh, mammalian uh, ventral vagal system, which is really creates the boundary condition. It constrains the sympathetics. It changes a nervous system of fight, flight, and aggression into a nervous system of joyful play, enthusiasm, and interaction. It keeps it constrained and gives us enthusiasm and energy without hurting others. Mm-hmm. We need to move. As a species, we do need to physically move, and we forget that, even though we tell our children or students sit still don't move uh we're a move we're a mobile species we like to move 100 percent. well that's and can you tell a little bit about the the dorsal vagal um the old vagus? Well, the old vagus has really an important role in homeostasis in mm-hmm. a sense supporting health growth and restoration but only when it's not recruited in defense so right. when our autonomic nervous system, when we get scared, and we get scared literally in two different, uh, let's say, trajectories, one in which we want to fight or flee, and that uses sympathetics. But there are situations where we're so frightened, or our nervous system is so, uh, basically, uh, it, it, our nervous system basically assumes that we're going to die, life threat. Right. Then fighting and fleeing has no, uh, no adaptive objective. Uh, so we immobilize, we basically shut down and people who have experienced medical trauma or trauma through social interactions, they have immobilized. Many of them have passed out or even defecated the situation. That's dorsal vagal in a defense mode. Uh, if you have a dog, you can see that if you yell at your dog, your dog defecates on the carpet. Yep. Your dog cuts down. That's a dorsal vagal is a shutting down response. It comes from the adaptive behaviors of reptiles under threat. Reptiles, when they're under threat, immobilize and literally stop breathing. And they can do that for a couple of hours. Small brains don't require much oxygen. Mm-hmm. So that immobilization that uh, is a death feigning is a natural behavior for a reptile. And what happens is when we don't have that newer mammalian ventral vagal circuit on board, we can become like reptiles. We can fight or we can immobilize. It's only when we, in a sense, have our, in a sense, our evolutionary heritage of being a social species that these other defense systems are constrained and can serve to do things like joyful play, but also to immobilize with great safety in the arms of another like love moments of intimacy that do not necessarily imply sexuality, but they imply a total body safety, a total co-safety between two people, like a baby and his mother or lovers. 
Great. Now, if, if someone is in, in a dorsal collapse, um, can they be stuck in that? Or is there, is there like a, is like a bell curve of, of you know, what actually the, the issues, you know, we, we use uh, our language. We have to understand that we have different levels of language. Right. And what you're reaching for is your language of the true neural mechanisms and neural states that support the observable. Mm-hmm. But shutting down has great gradations. So there is a true neural uh, signature for this uh, passing out, a syncope, yeah. uh, defecating. And this is a, certainly a severe, a major vagal surge through the dorsal vagus where the ventral vagus is no longer protecting or constraining. That's you know not, not a debatable question. But in reality, people don't go into that state very long right. or very often because it's potentially life threatening to do that. You're not getting enough oxygen to the brain, brain damage. You're not getting enough uh, oxygenated blood to the muscles, the spinal system, the skeletal motor. So the body collapses. What happens when it collapses? It falls, it gets injured, it gets injured. We, you know, our nervous system is inherently smart. So if it does this once, do you think it would want to do it a second time? No, <laughs> no, no, it adjusts. And what people end up doing is freezing. Right. And what is a freeze where you can see if you scream at a kid, they may do that. If you yell at your dog, they'll do that. Right. And you see that they haven't uh, passed out. There's muscle. T- it's like the gear in the light of uh, in the, in the headlights of a car. Right. It has sufficient muscle tone not to fall down. It has a degree of consciousness but it cannot easily mobilize. And this is different than a cat that's in a frozen state, freezing prior to pouncing on that mouse, because that cat is totally aware and conscious at that moment. Right. So so, we have- Oh, I was just gonna say, so they kind of lose the consciousness of the moment when they get into that freeze. Freeze, when a, not the cat, but certainly yeah. they, as a defensive mode, yeah, they lose the awareness. And what happens is when people are experiencing severe trauma due to adversity and abuse, often they don't really remember it. Right. They, don't remember, they remember the feelings, mm-hmm. but they don't remember the uh, antecedents. The time doesn't make sense because they're in a different physiological state that, that does not support higher brain structures. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're, if you get stuck in that, does it become like a positive feedback loop if you don't know how to kind of get that social interaction to kind of fire up the ventral vagus? Well, let's, let's not use the word, let's be careful by using the word getting stuck in it. Okay. Okay. So let's say that you experience this and you might've had a shutdown or let's say your body is, has a degree of wisdom. So instead of collapsing and uh, passing out, you implies with muscle tension. And uh, what happens is that how do you get out of that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is your question. Yeah. And the point is that the question, the ability to get out of uh, defensive states, including aggression and this uh, sympathetic activity without the ventral vagus uh, coming on, basically leads to the question, get that ventral vagal system on, and then you'll come out of those states. So it's almost like saying to, within chiropractic metaphor, what is the manipulation you need to do? And the answer, you could start with breathing, if you yep. can access breathing. 
Yep. Slow exhalations will increase the vagal activity. But if the, the other part is a, even a more passive one, is the intonation of voice of the people around. The first thing would be to reduce uh, the uh, exposure to low frequency sounds, which happens to be common in, the, in our industrialized world, mm -hmm. because low frequency sounds to our nervous system are cues of threat. Right. So if our clinics are quieter, if, our, if we have quiet places in our home, then the accessibility of that nervous system to detect uh, the prosodic, the intonations of a friendly voice become more available. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because a lot of our listeners are in our program called The Vitality Shift. And so we do a lot of objective testing, which includes mm -hmm. balancing, heart rate variability, um, rib cage expansion, because again, uh -huh. a lot to do with posture and stuff too. Because if you get into, we, all, we call it kind of the panic posture, if you, yeah. the body's kind of in that flexor dominant position. So we find that as we start to open that. Yeah. Well, you're, you're really uh, addressing what I call the metaphor of becoming ventral. So yeah. people say, well, you're in that ventral state, but think of the ventral side of the body. And that when we say I'm safe, we are opening up our ventral side. But if we watch people who aren't safe, they're closing and defending. And if you, so I spent quite a bit of time studying atypical populations like autistic kids who totally show you and tell you what's going on. Um, so the point is expanding the rib cage is expanding the ability of breath to come in. Right. Yeah. Actually, uh, this is kind of an oblique point. Uh, we start to do some work with Parkinson's and Parkinson's do the same curling in. 100%. And we start to use the safe and sound protocol, which is my acoustic intervention. And their faces start to come back, but they are in, in a sense, this conflict because the disease itself wants the body to go down, which is, you know, a skeletal motor signal. But once the face comes on, that ventral vagal circuit is linked to the neuroregulation of the faces. And they have, they actually start uh, motorically becoming different, but it's very easy term stressing or difficult for them to go through that processing of this conflict of neural signals. Mm -hmm. One neural signal is saying, become in a sense ventral, open up, become accessible. And yeah. the other one is a neuromotor pulling on the sympathetic or biasing on the sympathetics, which says, defend your body. Right. And it's an interesting dialogue that's going back and forth. And there's some really wonderful uh, providers, clinicians who are working with this very slow, working with this stimulation for Parkinson's, but titrating extraordinarily slowly. So where a more typical nervous system could tolerate five one-hour sessions in sequential days, the same five-hour program may take several months with the person with Parkinson's. Right. Well, and we find that too, even just with adjusting, um, yeah. people have different tolerance. So when we're doing our trainings, we're talking about what is the input, like uh, like the, the input um, how do you determine that input? Because at the beginning, like you said, if they are in that flexion position, they have a harder time accepting any changes. Well, let's stick with that for a moment because that is what you're doing is providing a, a real life example of how poly, polyvagal concepts work. Once your body is in that sympathetically dominated state without the ventral vagal circuit on board, 
your whole nervous system is biased towards being defensive. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to be very useful in socially communicating. You're not going to be tactful. And there's going to be great rigidity, not only in the neuromuscular control, but in the psychological perspective, because survival is really what that defense system is about. And that nervous system is under threat. And what you're trying to convince the nervous system is that you're not under threat. You're in a safe environment. But with a chiropractor or other uh, physical health or mental health provider is trying to do is say, I can help you, but the nervous system of the patient doesn't necessarily believe believe on that neural level. So it's not a cognitive decision. It's convincing the body that you're going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating. And I think, I think we were, I was just talking before the, before we went live was about um, when I was going through your book, uh, you talked about how in research, um, they first um, analyzed somatic nerves and then, and then they tried to utilize the same research to visceral nerves yeah. and it didn't match. So they kind of discarded it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you expand that just a little bit? Well, it has to do with learning principles. So people are learning, uh, much of psychology comes out of learning theory. And mm-hmm. learning theory was all about observable motor behaviors. And in the 60s, people became interested in autonomics. and could you, quote, train the heart, train blood pressure. Can you enter the body in that way? So they got into that argument and tried to create a universal model or theory, but it didn't work. It didn't work because the neuroregulation is being done in different parts of the brain and the priorities or accessibility of those areas differ. And one has to deal with is its maintenance of life you know, yeah. you're, the other one has to do with uh, basically mobilization of the organism to get something. So it has a motivational issue versus the ability to stay alive. Right. And that's that's pretty amazing because that's the exact same thing that happened in chiropractic is because in the beginning days of chiropractic, certain uh, patients would have these miraculous recoveries. Um, and But then if you said anything about it, you get in trouble because then you'd be claiming to treating a condition. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I think that's where we get this big fight in chiropractic. Well, I think it's a fight everywhere. And it yeah. has to do with, with the fact that uh, we as a society have not empowered the individual's nervous system or body, whatever system. When I use the word nervous system, um, including not just nerves, but neuroendocrine, neurochemical, immune, you know, the systems that support our day-to-day functioning. Mm -hmm. We are in a world that says the organ is broken. Let's fix the organ. Polyvagal theory says don't focus on the organ. You see, this is the same metaphor. Yeah. Focus on the concept of neuroregulation. But in medicine, there aren't any tools, or let's say very few tools, to measure neuroregulation. So what uh, what medicine is all about is about assessment. Mm-hmm. And people find, oh, there's nothing wrong with those organs. It's all, quote, in your head. Well, it's in your nervous system. And what happens over time is the neuroregulation of those organs is is atypical at best and damaging most likely. So it becomes, you're picking up, or you could pick up early the antecedents of end organ damage. And what you're describing in terms of miraculous healings or cures is that the nervous system basically detected through its manipulation with 
uh, a chiropractic practitioner, it detected that cues of safety were there and it could do its job. Right. And doing its job was this return to homeostasis and this return to health. But the underlying mechanism of that is the body no longer had to be in a state of defense. So the the problem, again, the other problem is our understanding and our use of words. We see uh, threat as the major uh, objective in life, meaning removal of threat or fulfilling the demands that threat requires of us. Right. But our nervous system really wants more. <laughs> it wants cues of safety. Yes. Threat, removal of threat is good, but it's not sufficient. And so the cues of safety literally turn on these neural pathways that we inherited that are really our, let's say, our evolutionary uh, uh, right to turn off threat. And instead, we focused on the threat. It's, it, I basically have now kind of described the new matrix or a model of the matrix. So remember in the movies, yeah. but the matrix that we are living through is this artificial bombardment of cues of threat and how our society manufactures cues of threat when there's none there, none there or some disappear. Right. And we put something else in there. And it, it keeps us mobilized as if we're always in a war. And we mm -hmm. can't really experience who we are in terms of our uh, emotional or intellectual, our compassion features, our benevolent ones, our spirituality. We can't experience it because we are, in a sense, constrained into defense. And since we don't know the potential, our intellectual potential, our emotional potential, uh, if we are locked in states of defense, and we are, and you as a chiropractor are, people are coming to you because their bodies are in states of defense. Yep. And it gets manifested in the traditional, I would say, what the traditional bread and butter of a chiropractic community, which was, you know, back pain and muscles and skeletal motor issues. And probably the more expanding one is people just aren't feeling good. And mm -hmm. they're coming to chiropractors because they feel that the social distance with a chiropractor is less than going to a, let's say, a MD, and that that social distance is reduced and also they may be manipulated, they may be touched. I don't mean manipulate in a negative way. Yeah. Their bodies are being touched and they may be craving the need to be touched. That's why we like to call it an adjustment because it sounds better. <laughs> I don't want to be manipulated. Yeah. <laughs> we do a specific yeah. adjustment. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry. I apologize. That's it's no problem. It's, it's, no it's problem. language. It's all language. Yeah. <laughs> it's all language. You corrected me on my language. So it's all good. That was good. Um, it's funny because in chiropractic, uh, when the developers of chiropractic was back like 120 years ago, their component was creating a state of ease. And so yeah. in, in chiropractic language, safety is the ease. And it's, it's funny when we see, um, practice members after a first adjustment, our goal is to get immediate ease. So the body gets into a state of immediate ease, but it doesn't sustain very long because they go yeah. back into their life. And our goal is, is to kind of create more, uh, instead of immediate ease, sustained ease over time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, um, I've seen this even with, uh, uh, the manipulations I've not manipulated. Well, I call manipulation. It's okay. Uh, it's all right. The, the acoustic, <laughs> let's use the acoustic stimulation that you could, in a sense, take individuals who were very, uh, I'd say, reactive and tense, and they would just, in a sense, become accessible and calm. 
yeah. then they walk out into the world and ram. They, you know, their their bodies weren't prepared for it because they did, they didn't have the same awareness of their body. They hadn't learned to navigate with that body, and the defensiveness was an adaptive adjustment, even though it was damaging. Right. Now, if for ventral vagal, um, to activate ventral vagal, would it be kind of like, I would assume it'd be sort of like a muscle that if it hasn't been fired for a long time, would it be almost atrophied? Well, I take a more optimistic view. Okay. No, I'm, I'm, I'm open. Right? You know, <laughs> okay. So I basically say that the structure, these are structures, uh, the neural regulation of it, uh, the uh, one one can quote, have neural exercises. So underneath polyvagal theory, if we were to translate it into an intervention model, it's about neural exercise. It's not about skeletal motor exercise, it's about neural. And the primary one is to utilize what's called the vagal break. And there are simple uh, neural challenges, posture shifts. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, breathing does it, uh, listening, uh, exercise. So I think one of the major benefits of physical exercise is the manipulation of the vagal break and the recovery cycle. Okay. So the it's like uh, pathways. I mean, it's almost this, uh, I'm going to quote a, a, a Canadian. Hence, oh, there you go. <laughs> you, know, you know, basically what's it sells that fire together, do something together, grow, you know, whatever. Oh, wire together, <laughs> wire together. Yeah. yeah. So in a sense, I think that's what neural exercise is about. You have to recruit it to become, uh, for it to work. You have to, and recruiting has to be repetitive and frequent. Um, I think when people sing and they play wind instruments, and even when they socially interact, it's a dynamic uh, neural exercise. I think our society missed out when it tried to minimize the importance of social play. Right and try to replace it with object play, meaning computers. Yeah. Social play was a fantastic neural exercise that led to greater resilience. Mm -hmm. Focusing on object doesn't have the same uh, benefits. And, and maybe you talk a little bit about uh, co-regulation. So someone has a hard time self-regulating um, yeah. and, and then they can kind of learn by co-regulating with someone else. Can you, well, or let's, is that let's, let's not use the word learn because once okay. we do that, we start blaming people for not having learned. Okay, that's true. Okay. Let's, let's make yeah. it a little bit easier. Let's say that <laughs> once we have experiences co-regulating, our nervous system now has different emergent properties. It can self-regulate for longer periods of time. And this is the natural developmental or maturational trend of infants and children. And we, again, our societal bias or educational bias is that this is all voluntary and intentional. So if you're not a good self-regulator, you're not trying hard enough. Right. And the developmental sequence is that you need co-regulation. And as a species... Uh, we need co-regulation. That's how we have, through our own history of humanity, reduced threat. And if you sometimes it's not the co-regulator is not another person. It could be your dog, right. it could be your horse. And these are mammals that share some of the features that we have in terms of this very integrated social engagement system. It uses neural regulation of the face and head as uh, and it links it to the regulation of our viscera through the vagus. And, and again, 
so I we'll get into this because I need uh, in terms of chiro chiropractic uh, practices. Do you do much with uh, uh, cranial nerves? Um, yeah, well, often well we we test them, and then obviously we're we are trying to um, to uh, strengthen that that ventral vagal um, because yeah. through all all of that movement, occipital movement too, because we yeah. find if the occiput is jammed. Which was interesting. Um, this goes back uh, maybe 30 or 30 more years ago. Um, a student was working in a chiropractic uh, university and sent me some data on rotation, axis rotation and vagal regulation. And we analyzed it. And basically uh, it changes the vagal regulation. Sometimes it raises it and sometimes it lowers it. Basically it more normalizes it for the individual. Right. And you're probably seeing that. And what you're doing well and that's i think that's too well like one morning it's funny because my wife was like i'm going to do this so she's working the front so she took resting heart rate on all of my patients um, mm -hmm. before their adjustment and then yeah. did resting heart rate after their adjustment and like basically 99 percent of them yeah. lowered heart rate yeah. after an adjustment yeah. but you probably would see it also in their face so if you look yes. at their face so the, the issues you see the upper part of the face working you see in a sense a more beatific or calmer expression you probably see it hear it in their voice yes and, and that's because laryngeal and pharyngeal nerves are vagal right so it's part of our evolutionary heritage that to ensure that we uh that to communicate to an other conspecific that we were safe to come close to or we were safe coming close to them we broadcast our physiological state in our voice and that was not language it was vocalization so people with certain types of voices people feel comfortable with people with other types of voices more monotonic less uh, uh melodic people are more hesitant to be close to right so, now I have just have a question because chiropractic, like one of our big things in chiropractic is like, uh, we have basically kind of like a, a vitalistic chiropractic group where, you know, we think everything's connected. It's just not piece of parts. And, and we think chiropractic is a lot more beneficial than just back pain, uh, because we're, we're basically putting the, the, mo, uh, the, the body in movement mm -hmm. and, and letting the brain become more aware of itself. Yeah. And so we're trying to get more research. So the latest research have been finding that under chiropractic care, it's lighting up different parts of the brain. So the brain's becoming more aware of the body, which helps mm -hmm. to improve proprioception. So I was just wondering if you could, if you've done any um, work with pro improving proprioception and improving safety. No, but the explanation, you see the focus, and this is when people, uh, well, you're, you're talking about the motivation to do certain types of research tends to be a very let's use the term cortical centric yes yep. and 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 the point is that that's fine but what you're getting really are changes in brainstem function that open up portals to higher cortical function right. so it, it's a it's the modeling and in this cortical and cognitive centric world we focus on that the top layers of the brain in certain areas and we use imaging as our validation but the more i would say parsimonious and more basic is really the brain stems regulating the body so if you take your language of what you said the body is becoming more aware of itself and more regulatory of its own organs and that's the role of the brain stem with its extended branches through the autonomic nervous system in a sense becoming a very integrated surveillance system 
that is providing feedback in the regulation of organs. Yeah, it's funny because I often use an analogy of uh, motion detectors. So they'll yeah. say we have proprioception all the way through our spine. And it's kind of, I always say it's kind of like if I put something in your hand and you weren't, and your eyes were closed and you weren't aware of what it was, but you weren't mm. allowed to move your hand, mm. it would be hard to be a kind of aware of what that was. Yeah. But if we can move our hand, we create movement, it creates information, and then our brain can actually interpret what's what's going on. Yeah. And so often that's what we're basically trying to do is by optimizing movement, because again, it's the same thing. We have a hierarchy of vitality that we had to take our practice members through and motion is the base of, mm-hmm. of that pyramid. So I, I just find it interesting how uh, as that improves, balance improves. Yeah. Uh, and the the part I, I you know so here is where the I would say the problems we're in a in a deconstructed world in medicine and science and physiology mm-hmm. and humanity uh, which doesn't really attribute much to the organizational system itself right and actually this is the theme of what you're doing I I looked at your webpage so solatogenesis yes. is could be viewed from a systems perspective and saying, what are the emerging properties of this wonderful system? But the system to function is not isolating the individual, isn't a separate, separated from the part of interacting with others. So there's levels and degrees of connectivity uh, and connectedness that define what it is to be a human. So the, on the simplest level, we have uh, disciplines that have difficulty seeing a brain-body relationship, just to start there. Yeah. Then, then you push it and say, well, mind-body. Then you say context-body. And you start going into all these various levels. And you realize that you start getting into arguments because the knowledge base to translate across these disciplines becomes too large. Right. And and it, I view it as deficits in our educational model, and especially in the medical health or uh, allied medical health. Yeah. And that is that the concept of feedback loops is buried at best. And so most uh, models of treatment are models of titration of medication or manipulation, as opposed to understanding that the system has rules that you need to understand. And it, it has a dynamic, and that's, those rules are about dynamic feedback. And when they get violated, the system reorganizes with other properties. And what polyvagal theory says, the autonomic nervous system has certain properties. And you can see it reorganizing from being accessible, social, uh, with the autonomic benefits and the social benefits, health benefits. Mm-hmm. And you can see it being retracted to a mobilization defense. And with a biasing of worldviews and the sense of being in constant threat. And you can also see it going one step beyond, and that is being overwhelmed and shutting down. So you can see the properties of that system, its emergent, its emergent properties being state-related, as well as the observables, whether we're talking about health or behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's funny because even, even in chiropractic, there's always battles around the different techniques of adjusting. And it's funny because all the masters of all the techniques still have the great outcome because it's not actually, I would say it's not about chiropractic. It's, well, about, it's about getting the environment of ease, right? Yeah, and that can well, happen in different ways. 
I th- okay, so in the world, I got invited into the world of traumatology. I was not a trauma therapist. I'm not a therapist. I'm a laboratory scientist, but I had a model that mapped into the experience of the therapist and their clients. And because the model had greater validity than what they had been taught, it got traction. So right. in a sense, the theoretical model explained the experience. And that's a, a wonderful test of a, of a theory. But the interesting part to me was that uh, there are therapists, regardless of their degree, regardless of their training, who are wonderful therapists. Yep. What is the common theme? The common theme is that their interaction with their client results in the client feeling safe. Then the yes. body expresses these emergent properties, which are improved health, physical health, homeostatic function, and what goes with that, mental health and socialization. Well, and I, and I think when I was listening to that, um, I, I was saying the same thing as chiropractic is that we, we were doing something which was giving a result, but the way we were explaining it was wrong. Because before we used to say like the, the bone would push on the nerve and then the, yeah. the nerve goes didn't work properly. Well, think about the just the motivation for that justification. Right. And it was because chiropractic medicine uh, had to uh, was under threat. Yeah. from a, let's say, a traditional medical model and had to, in a sense, justify in an evidence-based model, which is fix it. You have to have an external manipulation, whether it's pharmaceutical, surgical, or adjustment in the chiropractic language. Right. But it, it gave no, no, uh, uh, no, no respect for the body's own ability to... Uh, reorganize itself. Mm-hmm. So I have a I have a very good friend who's a craniosacral person. Yeah. And when I was at the University of Illinois in Chicago, I was in the medical school, a physician from Cincinnati drove up to visit my friend who was visiting me from Europe. And I put him on, I had an oscillatory tilt table. It was an electric motor that tilted people very slowly. It was like riding the waves and visualize that in osteopathic medicine, they talk about slow rhythms, and it was really capturing that vascular rhythm. Now, this guy went on, and he had come up because he had severe problems in his neck. You know, and he's on it for like three or four minutes. His neck turns really scarlet, gets all red. His face starts changing colors. And my friend says to me, he hits me with his elbow, and he says, you keep doing that. I'm out of a job. <laughs> and in a sense, the, the guy who was a physician um, had such belief that he got onto this thing and he went for the experience. And the experience enabled him to feel safe enough for his body to reduce the tension that was keeping his neck and the skeletal motor system in this rigidity. Right. And well, that, that's also a, a nice to make it um, make sense to people. Because I think that I've heard, I heard in your book saying how sometimes when people think it's in their head or there's no no explanation for yeah. what they're experiencing, that that creates the that creates more stress in that in itself. Well, they feel responsible, and they and the again, there's these other concepts. We are unaware of our body. We don't honor our body, mm-hmm. and we don't have moments of self compassion and respect for what our body is trying to do for us. We get angry at the body. Mm-hmm. 
So and I, w- I was just going to think for, for suggestions for, uh, for research, like how, how have you been, because you've been per- performing research, how do you do your research without uh, getting into that realm of treating conditions? Um, um, well, I would say I start with curiosity. And I have kept, I've been true to the model. And the model has been that there is an intervening variable between inputs and outputs. Right. And that the intervening variable, it can be broadly described as organismic state, organismic characteristics. It can be measures of autonomic state. And we start seeing that that is accounting for the variance of whether the input results in a reliable output. Um, I mean, it, so. I've been uh, trying to create the language that would work so that we could see manipulations. Let's let's even move to another major metaphor, which may not metaphor, but clinical condition that many of your uh, listeners are interested in. That's trauma. Yeah. And we've been documenting that everyone knows that trauma history affects function in the world, mental health features. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, we did a study that was just recently published showing that adversity history was related to symptomatology, mental health, mental health outcomes during the pandemic in individuals who did not get the disease. So mm-hmm. if you had an adversity history, being under the threat of the pandemic resulted in more PTSD symptoms, more anxiety, more worry. But virtually all the predictive variants of adversity history was accounted for by subjective measures of their autonomic state. Oh, interesting. So, so it's really saying you have a retuned nervous system that makes your autonomic nervous system in a chronic state of threat, which you would call chronic or toxic stress, your mental health outcomes are going to be poor. It doesn't really matter that you had a trauma history. This is what's important, but the pathway of the trauma history to poor outcomes is to retune or is your autonomic nervous system retuned? And I think that that enables us to make uh, a different set of predictions because with trauma, everyone got really attracted to ACE scores, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, very important but people were looking at it as causality and literally people still do this. They introduce themselves to me and say, I have an A score of eight, which is pretty challenging. And what they're trying to tell me is that they have a really, uh, have had a horrible set of experiences, but they're okay. They're doing well. The point that I want to make is it's not the ACEs. It's what your body did with those experiences that is critical. And we tend to externalize. So we're looking at causes when we should be looking at how our nervous system reacted to the events or to the situation. Because we end up in the world that says, look, I I survived. It didn't bother me. Why is it bothering you? So people get shamed. And what we are, of course, learning that some things that we may, you or I may view as trivial can be catastrophic in the lives of others. Right. And it doesn't mean that we're wonderful or they're not. It just means they had this vulnerability and the nervous system collapsed trying to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I've had uh, two uh, COVID long haulers that I've worked with personally as yeah. patients. And, and it's amazing their recovery once yeah. we, we get them opening their rib cage and stuff because they were stuck in the exhaustion, yeah. fuzzy yeah. head, can't breathe still. 
Yeah, well, we're working on a project now of people who have gotten COVID. Yeah. And again, that variance is also accounted for by what happened to the autonomic nervous system. Right. And the issue is how can you now retune that autonomic nervous system to make it more normal, more optimal? I'd say more normal. We don't have to make it optimal. And what you're talking about in sense of expanding the rib cage, enabling breath to occur, you're really saying um, moving the breathing patterns to enable more vagal regulation because they're now extending the duration of exhalations, which is when that vagal circuit, that ventral vagal circuit works. And of course, what you're seeing is the chest is elevated yep. and the breathing is really up high, high thoracic and not going down into the abdomen. So as you manipulate that, you're allowing that nervous system to change physiological state and be comfortable in being accessible. And what's happening is the uh, prolonged symptoms of the disease disappear because those symptoms are not of the disease. The disease is gone. The body is stuck. The body is, is not convinced that the disease is gone. This is the whole, this is like with chronic pain. With chronic pain, the damage has been healed. The body doesn't know that. Right. Or it doesn't, let's say, doesn't accept it. Let's use that term. Right. Uh, and, and that's part of your job. Your job is to enable the body to be reassured that they can go to those different places, meaning that deep breath, the rib cage can be moved. I mean, you watch people who are stressed out, the rib cage gets stuck up there. Totally. Yeah. And in shallow breathing and their heads forward. Yeah. And it's so funny because I almost wanted to create an objective finding of just like, and this is before I even knew what you're talking about was just taking a picture of their face. Cause yeah. you, you don't even have to do any other signs at all. We call them the chiropractic vital signs. You just do a picture of their face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you see what you are saying is that you as a practitioner are sensitive to your clients. That's what you're really saying. If, if you're seeing that in, in your clients, they're seeing something in you. Right. Because their, their nervous system is starting that di- dyadic interaction of co-regulation and to be aware of others is part of that co-regulation. Mm-hmm. If the head turning away and saying, you know, asking people how they feel with just language without in a sense allowing them to say, well, what do you really feel? Coming, you know, you know, and often people won't have words to describe their feelings because yeah. we're not used to telling people about our feelings. Right. That's excellent. Well, I know we're coming to the end of time, but I, I'd lo- I'd love to continue this conversation at some point, or I'll connect with your people because, like, it's just there's so much uh, similarities that I think it's yeah. amazing. But I just wanted you to talk a little bit to our chiropractors out there because we've had chiropractors frontline all through the pandemic, mm-hmm. all like with risks of being shut down and all the other kind of stuff, and and just talking about obviously how important it is for them to be yeah. ventral vagal. Yeah. Well, I think the magic, the cluster of the word is the importance of self-compassion and Mm self-care. We, you know, we often think of ourselves as a resource for others. And this is really what we're talking about. And we have a responsibility to others, but our body understands that, but we'll stop at some point. And we call that burnout. And the point is that as a caregiver, and that's what you're doing, you are a co-regulator to someone else's nervous system. But the word co is important, which means you get the benefits when that client responds back to you. Right. And when you start burning out, 
you're not seeing or feeling the benefits, which means you're not cueing the other in the same way. So it's a moment to say, I need some time to deal with my own physiology, to listen to my own body, to feel where I am, to take that deep breath, but to honor that my body is saying, that's all I could handle for now. Great. Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah. And, and so like a, a, a lot of this stuff that we've talked about for stimulating the ventral vagus is a lot of the chiropractors can do on their own too with obviously. Yeah. Yeah. The, the issue is we're, as I mentioned to be before we start, I'm in North Florida and the pandemic is really, it, it's horrible here. More people in the hospital, hospitals are filled yet half the more than half the population is vaccinated. So there is a lot going on in terms of people's perspective of what is safe and not safe. So if you are, in a sense, aware of the pandemic in your body, you're under chronic threat. I wrote a paper that's in the psychiatry journal, which was about the paradoxical reaction of the pand of our nervous system during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it really was all about the fact that we're under a state of threat, but to be uh, to deal with good public health uh, practices, we have to violate our need for social interaction. And right. so it becomes a paradox. And we need to know how to deal with that. We need to realize pandemic is dangerous. It's real threat. How do we get social interaction to a level that enables us to mitigate our own threat reactions of the pandemic? And in part, conference, video conferencing is, is really what we have. And it's not the greatest, but it's certainly a lot better than the phone. We can see each other. We can interact. We can modulate our voices. We can you know, smile. Yeah. Um, so the point is that we have to acknowledge what the pandemic does to our nervous system. And we have to respect the fact that to mitigate it, Social engagement behaviors has been the go-to behavior of humanity from the start of civilization. Right. And the parts that don't need the social uh, engagement are, are basically exercises that mimic part of it, like right. breathing patterns, um, chanting, singing, playing music, which, of course, in groups become even better. Right. Well, that's excellent. So I, I, I just really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. Don. Yeah. Good, I'd, good to meet you. Yes, I'd love. And again, we'll reach out after and get a little more information. Um, actually, could you maybe let the listeners know a little bit about um, the, the nonprofit you're talking about yeah. as far as the so, training? Yeah. Yeah. We created, uh, it's actually, um, it's, it's about a year and a half ago, the Polyvagal Institute. And the webpage or website is polyvagalinstituteoneword.org. And we're developing with a lot of different groups, uh, polyvagal informed educational modules. And we're working with a chiropractor now to develop one. We're working with coaches. We're working with uh, physicians. Uh, we're working with mental health providers and educators. Uh, the Institute was is a not-for-profit to, in a sense, expand the impact of the principles embedded in polyvagal theory to, to, to the world we're in. Uh, there are people interested in, in social justice who are also working with us. So um, it, it's if it, the extraction of what polyvagal theory is about. It's really about what it is. What is it to be a human being? Right. And in a sense, creating that map and understanding how we can optimize the human experience. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so, so, so that webpage, you can go there. And there's also one other thing I want, wanted to mention. Sure. And I have a book, a new book coming out called Polyvagal Safety. And uh-huh. it will be out, I believe, uh, in September sometime. It's being published by Norton. Uh, and it's almost readable. Some of the sections are. <laughs> Because some of your stuff's a little bit heavy, I've heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's good. And so will it be available on Amazon? Oh, yeah. It's oh, actually yeah. on up there now, but the book is not deliverable yet. So so people could actually pre-order it probably yep. right now if they went mm-hmm. to Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's wonderful. All right. Well, it was a total pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, Don. And thank you very much for inviting me. Have a great day. And so for everybody else there, I hope you enjoyed today's uh, podcast episode. And until next time shift on. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you've received value from this episode, please share this with a fellow chiropractor and take some time to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever your favorite place is to listen to podcasts. If you're interested in learning more about our programs and events, please visit www.thevitalityshift.com or connect with me on Facebook. I would love to hear from you. So until next time, Dr. Don out.